Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Namaste, Yoga Revealed podcast community. This is Alec Vishal Rubin, and I am so excited to welcome you back to Season 3 of the Yoga Revealed podcast. I had an absolutely amazing weekend at Hanuman Festival earlier this month in June in Boulder, Colorado, and it has been such a beautiful feeling to ground down at home after traveling for 20 months. Today, it is a true gift from my heart to yours to introduce the one and only Bhakti-bound brother, David Newman, a man who has dedicated his entire life in love. Bhakti Yoga has revealed a way of being for David that is something to recognize, to admire. He's become a walking beacon of divine love, and we are so blessed to have his presence with us today. Get ready to dive deeper into the infinite abyss of your heart on this episode of the Yoga Revealed Podcast. Namaste, Yoga Revealed Podcast. It is so beautiful to be tuned in with you in this moment present. Thank you so much. This is Alec Bashal Rubin, and I'm coming live to you from Boulder, Colorado. We've had an amazing weekend here at Hanuman Festival all weekend, and it is such a blessing and such a privilege and honor to be able to sit across from a man who is truly a mere reflection of God and spirit and has dedicated his life to transmitting the essence of sound and vibration through musical instruments, through his voice. David Newman. Thank you, Alec. Thank you so much. Right on. 
for oh, taking time out of your day. My joy. Yes, Thanks thank for you having so me. much. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the, the first questions I'd always love to ask people, and then I'd love to hear a little background story of you and where you're coming from, for maybe some of our listeners who haven't heard your name before. Sure. How did yoga first reveal itself to you in your life? My earliest recollection is being in the car with my parents and seeing the word <laughs> somewhere through the window on a wall, on a sign. I like the way the, the word sounded. That's my first recollection. Yoga. Yoga. <laughs> okay, what about the first um, actual like practical embodiment of being like, whoa, Yeah. what is this? Well, uh, I was young. I was in elementary school. I was in my room. I remember looking down. It was my leg. And I, and I thought to myself, wow, this is a body. Where, mm. where does it come from? Where do I come from? Who made it? How did I get here? Mm. This is a mystery. I'd like to explore solving it. <laughs> that was my first embodied yogic moment. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And I'm yeah. sure that it, man, I mean, that, and that was in elementary school. Elementary school. Wow. Soon thereafter, um, I was uh, around 12 or 13. My parents took my brother and I to get initiated in uh, a practice called TM, or Transcendental Meditation, which this was in the 70s. It was in vogue. So my parents, who weren't necessarily drawn to, to yoga or meditation, took me and my brother to learn meditation because everyone was doing it in their, in their world. It was the cool thing to do. It was the cool thing to do, but okay. it stuck. That's a good me. thing that it stuck. Wow. Yeah, it, it made me less stressed out over homework. <laughs> Wow, so that came to you at a very young age, and I, I couldn't imagine, for me, what that must have been like if I were to have meditation invited into my life at such a young, malleable, coachable age, mm-hmm. and to have that throughout high school and college and adolescent years. Yeah, it was a great gift. You know, wow. I was given a mantra and then you know, told to meditate twice a day for 20 minutes, and um, it, it made a difference. It made a difference. I During those meditation sessions, I remembered realizing that no matter what was going on in my life, mm. that I could always rise above it. Mm. That it, it wouldn't take me down, so to speak. That mm. I could find something inside of me that was bigger than it. Mm. Yeah. And in those first maybe couple of years of uh, committing to 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at night, and using your mantra uh, to meditate... Was there a point when you actually maybe wanted to fall off the meditation train due to circumstances of life? And if so, what was it that held you or that kept you on that, mm. on that practice for, on that practice ground? Well, I can't say that I didn't miss moments of <laughs> meditation, but um, I, I meditated at that time for the same re- reason that I do any form of spiritual practice now, because I enjoy it. Mm. And I enjoyed the feeling that came from tapping into that inner peace. And it was fortifying to me at the time, and it's still fortifying to me today. I remember an early memory of um, being meditating down in the basement of my parents' home. They were having the house painted, and uh, the garage, all the paint was being stored in the garage. And there's something called internal combustion and the paints just ignited a fire, and the entire garage and a portion of the house was on fire. 
And I remember uh, my mother coming running down, telling me the part of the house was on fire during my meditation. <laughs> and that was that was an incredible teaching because I didn't feel scared and I didn't feel afraid. I just got up out of my meditation and walked out of the house. And I remembered that. That stuck with me to know that when you're in that space, you can handle things without you know, being fearful. Wow. Yeah. Wow, what a beautiful lifelong integrated lesson that you can now tap into in the face of extreme chaos. Yeah, it hasn't happened since. But <laughs> <laughs> nothing that extreme. Nothing that extreme ha- has happened since, you know. Sure. But yeah, yeah. And I'm sure in your life there has been moments of extreme situations unfolding. Yes. And uh, absolutely, as we all will inevitably experience something in that of that caliber. Just not in the midst of Maybe not in the midst of a, <laughs> of a practice, burning yeah. fire, right. literally. And, um, you know, in the face of that, maybe recently... Spontaneous combustion, that's what it's Quite called. literally, spontaneous, spontaneous combustion. combustion. <laughs> uh, you know, what has been one of the greatest momentary tools when eyes are open mm. to align yourself with the inner peace that you have found in sitting practice how have you been able to truly implement that in day-to-day conversation situations that might not be as desirable kind of like sitting in a burning house yeah sure one of the things that always challenged me as a child and brought sadness was just how many people there were in the world And I always felt overwhelmed by that. You know, I knew that I kind of had a family and friends, and then I would go into cities and see so many people. And it always brought this sense of disconnection and separation to think that there's this many people in the world. I remember it being an overwhelming sensation. When I came to Bhakti Yoga and got initiated in the practice and started to chant and started to heed the advice of my spiritual guide, to see the divine in everyone, to love everyone, I realized that we're not all separate from each other, that there's one living love presence that it's expressing itself in infinite forms. And the awakening of that has reduced that sense of of tension, you know, uh, of, of just, you know, the world being so diverse. It's sort of holistically brought it together for me, the realization that 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 which is looking through my eyes is also looking through your eyes, Mm -hmm. and we're given this opportunity to see it in each other. Mm -hmm. And it's that vision that has come through my practice that enables me to be present and enables me to feel love. And in the Mm -hmm. face of adversity, even if there's somebody in front of me who's really challenging me, I still know they're not separate from me. Mm. It's as Ram Das says, it's just a manifestation of the divine wearing a better disguise. Mm. And my practice is just to see through that disguise. Mm. Beautiful. I want to comment on um, one thing in reflection to my own life in light of um, how we see others through our own lens. And then I'd like to drop into the journey of Bhakti Yoga and how that came to your life into uh, your practice. So in this first part, you know, it's something that recently this is going, I'd love to reflect back to because, you know, I spent seven months in London and Mm -hmm. our listeners, they they know my journey of that for the most part. And I just realized three days ago at the top of Red Rocks, as I was reflecting on a a, a brutal seven months in Mm -hmm. solitude without the beauty of my own community here in Colorado and in Kauai and um, the lack of immediate nature. Right. (laughs) That is just not... (laughs) 
present in the concrete jungle. Uh I was able to hold a new essence of the word namaste. Mm, Beautiful. We hear it, you know, all the time. And uh, the light in me sees and honors the light in you as I see you right through the lens of my eyes that I'm seeing myself through the lens of your eyes and back and forth. It's a mirror, right? right? When I was in London, I was able to recognize now in retrospect, wow, I saw a depth of emotional darkness in other people mm. that I also feel in myself. Sure. And to honor that and to respect that and to love that mm. as I love myself, I could love that in other people who maybe not don't have the, uh, the access yet in their life, in their personal spiritual process to love themselves. Sure. And to see that and to visualize that, to understand that, to live that was really powerful for me. So I really, I really love hearing um, everything that you said on, on the, the, oh, yeah. the lens. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, the view, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then moving into bhakti yoga, like, could you please do share with us how, how did it, this journey begin for you in light of stepping into, gosh, selfless service, Seva, mm. and, and wanting to, yeah, how did this reveal itself to you? Sure. I've had, you know, I'm sure as you can relate to many incarnations within this one. And back in the early 1990s, I was in law school in New York City. <laughs> and <laughs> and, uh, and after um, the first year of law school, I was working at a New Age bookshop uh, on the Upper West Side. You would do that. What's that? You would do that. Uh, yeah. I could yeah, see that. I could see that. Yeah, yeah, I see it. <laughs> and I was working with a woman who was a bit older than me, and she had a guru named Guru Mai who had an ashram in South Fallsburg, New York. So she said to me uh, one weekend, hey, would you like to come to the ashram with me? And remember, at that time, I was a law school student, so I was in a bit of a different headspace. And um, I went with her. And I um, walked into this room where there were probably between maybe 700 and 1,000 people. And before the guru walked in, they were all chanting the first kirtan mantra I ever heard, which was Kali Durga Namo Namah. Wow. And they chanted this mantra for a good 45 minutes. And I didn't know what was happening. My body just started to sway and swoon. And all I remember thinking was, wow, this feels really good. What is this? (laughs) And it was a little different than that meditative stillness that that I had experienced. It was was dynamic. It had more of a kind of a a pulse to it and a movement and a, a quality, even a kind of a heightened emotionality. And it was different than that sort of detached meditative space. Um, So I started to, uh, I don't want to say chase it, but I started to gravitate toward that feeling. Um, My, after I graduated law school, took the bar exam, uh, I decided to try something novel. And that was I opened up a yoga center in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Soon after opening up a yoga center, I started to feel like there was something beyond. I was, um, I was teaching asana practice and yoga sutras and pranayama and but I just never forgot that that feeling of the chanting. So I, at that time, uh, Krishnadas started to tour, and I read uh, Be Here Now, mm. and uh, I started reading books of Neem Karoli Baba, and I became aware of Krishnadas's music, and then Jayutal's music, and then Bhagavan Das's music. 
And having a yoga center, I started to invite them to come and mm-hmm. offer kirtans. And now, you know, Krishna Das sings for a thousand people. He mm-hmm. came to our yoga center. We probably had 50 or 60 people wow. chanting with Krishna Das. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had been a musician. You know, mu- music had always been a part of my life. And But when I met those guys, they were, you know, Westerners that were chanting, that had this bhakti practice, and they were also musicians, and I had been a musician. So they mirrored, they reflected something back to me. And I started chanting from there, and it took me to the next level of, um, of bhakti practice. And then Neem Karoli Baba met me on the inner planes and, and uh, initiated me into the practice. And before I knew it, I was chanting with others, traveling, making albums, composing mantras, and it just swept me like a big bhakti wave. And it, there was never this moment where I said, I am practicing bhakti yoga. It was like just bhakti came into me and that was that. And I eventually left my yoga center behind and became a gypsy at the age of 40. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And that's been happening for the last 15 years about. Wow. Uh-huh. Mm, thank you for that insight. And so... I really like, could you speak more to how you feel that you weren't, like bhakti yoga, it just was so, I mean, you radiate the bhakti yoga as mm. the bhakti came into you. And give, for those who don't know, what, what does that word mean? What does bhakti mean? And can we dive into that? Because I think that's the essence of what has come into your life. Yeah. I always say bhakti comes and gr- takes you by the hand and mm. leads you onward. Um, it is the remembrance of our true nature as love. It is the practice of unconditional love. It comes forward simultaneous with the realization, I am love. If I don't know that I am love, I can't love you. Ahem prema. Yes, ahem prema. And I'll tell you a story which, um, which um, is the moment to which that, that love was reflected back to me in the deepest possible way. Um, I was teaching yoga, I was managing the yoga center, and Nim Karoli Baba had come into my life through these various sing- uh, chanters that I had mentioned and the books that I had read. Um, I moved into a new apars- apartment, and I asked my sister-in-law at the time, uh, well, she asked me what I wanted as a housewarming gift. So one of my practice from, from an early age is I like to read and learn about the great saints, particularly Indian saints. Mm. I've always felt drawn to them. So I had a big stack of books uh, in my apartment, and she said, what would you like for a housewarming gift? Well, she's an artist. I said, well, why don't you come by, look through my books, and if there's an image of a particular saint, I'd love you to paint me a portrait of one that I could hang in my apartment. So she came over one day, she sifted through the books, and she opened a book about Nim Karoli Baba, stories about Nim Karoli Baba, and there was a full-page image of his face, of his Mm. smiling face. (laughs) She opened it up. I was sitting on the couch behind her. She turned to me, and she said, I've never seen a face that embodies this this much joy. I have to paint this face. Over the course of many months, she started engaging this painting and eventually said, I want you to come over to my studio. I've completed the painting of Neem Karoli Baba, and I want you to come see it. She opened the door to her artist studio, and I was absolutely blown away, magnetized by what she had created. It was, I thought it would would be a little painting. It was this magnificent and this very big oil, colorful oil painting of him, of that face. And when I looked at it, the first thing I thought was she didn't use paint. She used nectar. It just felt like it was dripping with nectar and love. She gave me the painting some days later. I put it up on my wall. 
I had I had a Morthea statue of Kali, and I lit an incense stick. I closed my eyes, and as I started to meditate, I had read about like for instance books like Autobiography of a Yogi when Yoga, uh, when Yogananda's guru came to him on the inner planes after he had taken Mahasamadhi after he had passed. I closed my eyes in a meditation. Neem Karoli Baba came through and met me. And he said, I manifested this painting for you because I want to be this big in your life. Mm. And in that moment, he just returned my heart to me on a platter and said, you are love. And I just burst into tears. And that was the initiation of my bhakti path. Yeah. And, it, and, and, it's, and he's you know, hasn't left me since. Wow. And you say he returned your own heart to you. Those are the words. You know, my heart had never left me my essence of as love had always been intact but uh you know something spiritual amnesia forgetting who we are there was something in the reflection you know you had mentioned the word we reflect to each other true nature we we reflect to each other love it's a great mystery to me how that interaction took place nonetheless he reflected back to me who i had forgotten myself to be and that's the image somehow. I don't know why I say he returned my heart on a platter back to me. I don't know why those are the words I use, but in the dualistic sense, because, you know, I had never been separated from my heart. Mm-hmm. But in the dualistic sense, I, there, I just felt like he, he just gave me that ultimate reflection. He returned my heart to me. Not literally, mm-hmm. but it was, for me, the ultimate remembering. And it just, you know, I burst open in that mm-hmm. moment. What would you say to, or what have you said, and what would you say to those who feel that they have forgotten who they are mm-hmm. and uh, perhaps don't remember and they don't have this path, they don't have a spiritual practice? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what would you say in response to those who feel that they are lost on their journey? To want it more than anything. That's what I would say. Because everyone's journey is unique. Not everybody will will resonate with the story I just told in terms of that happening in their life. Not everybody, you know, will will have those kinds of experience, but everybody will have magical experiences, things that will enlighten them, things that will awaken them, situations, people that will come into their lives that will remind them in the same way that I was reminded. It really starts with the desire, you know. It, it, let that be your priority. If you feel lost and you're longing to be re, reacquainted with your heart and truth and love, just want it with every every ounce of your being. And uh, there's a, a word kripa or grace in mm-hmm. bhakti practice, and that is that God, goddess, the universe, love, truth can't help but respond when you put a genuine prayer out. And so if you are um, uh, invested in the world and invested in ways of being that that aren't aligned with who you are, that's going to keep being your state of being. But if you want something more, if you want something deeper, if you want a spiritual life, if you want to uh, live in joy and feel love in your heart, just want it with every iota of your being, mm. and it and, and you will be given that gift. It's just the nature of the feedback mechanism of life itself. You know, love calls forth love. Mm. It's the essence of affirmation. Yeah, yeah, and just just to feel it and mean it. You know, just to make it as deep, make the the, the silent prayer, or the verbal prayer. You know, mm. as, as deep as you can. I think that's a beautiful segue into. A new route. 
the verbal prayer and the nonverbal prayer and how both of these are in essence connected to mantra and your own daily practice or how, yeah, let's go with that. Sure. So can you comment a little more on what that looks like, a nonverbal prayer, a verbal prayer for you in your own spiritual practice, how you use those to practice? Can you mm. talk about your practice in that regard? Sure. Well, when I was drawn into bhakti practice, bhakti does utilize the power of what's called the mantra. And the mantra literally means that which guides guides the mind into truth. You know, you could you could see your your mind is being lost out out, out at sea with big waves of distraction. <laughs> and then the the mantra is the life raft. It gives you life and it guides the mind and protects the mind. And so uh, it, 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 utilizing the mantra is aligning yourself with a particular vibration. Mm-hmm. And the mind has mixed vibrations, some of which are uplifting, some of which bring us down. Uh, the mind can manifest uh, fear, it can manifest um, resistance, things of that nature. Uh, in, in Kirtan, we use a particular language called Sanskrit, and in its mantric form, it's non uh, it's um, non-symbolic, meaning that if I was to say the word uh, apple, you could visualize an apple, but you can't taste an apple except in your imagination. But even more so, you can't get nourished by the word. You have to get nourished by the apple itself. With mantra, it's the, the, the nourishment is embedded within the sound. So when you chant or you recite those particular mantras, what it does is it brings you in direct communion with with the essence of that sound. And all kirtan mantras are devotional by nature, which means their their essential intention is to bring us in touch with devotion, with our love for the divine. Mm. So it's literally cellular I call it an I call it an ancient form of sound healing. Yeah, yeah, that that has traversed cultures and thousands of years and mm. has stayed with us. Mm. Yeah. And like you use the word affirmation, um, often people say, "Well, what does this mantra mean? What does that mantra mean?" And you can you can express nuances of meaning. Essentially, though, each mantra means you know, "Thank you, divine. Thank you, God. Thank you, goddess. I love you." Mm. Every mantra is saying the same thing. Another way I like to say it is they're love songs to self. Mm. Yeah. You're, yeah, you're embracing yourself as love. Wow. Yeah. I love that. And how has this, you know, kind of not taking steps back, you know, you had a yoga studio and you were teaching yoga and then Bhakti really began to reveal it herself to you. Sure. And how you wanted to serve. And practice in a new way, right? Exactly. So what was that shift like for you going from what, how you, how you feel you had to practice maybe with asana mm-hmm. at one point in time in your life right. into what your practice looks like now? Sure. In retrospect, in reflection of the, all these, how, how many years of practice has it been since then? You know, what, what has this been like? Sure, sure. Um, yeah. For me, it's always been trusting, uh, trusting the joy. You know, I told you I started meditating at 12. That led me to studying Zen. That led me to practicing asana. That led me to studying the Yoga Sutras, to Vedic chanting, to finding kirtan. 
And I've always let my heart guide me. What is present for me in this moment? I remember, Alec, I was um, with a guru having darshan uh, named uh, Majaya Sati Bhagavati. And I was in one of these transitions where a practice I had been doing had lost its, its zest for me. And I and there was the part of my mind that thought I should continue practicing that way. And there was that other part of me that had always trusted uh, what what I what I gravitated to doing because it brought me joy. And I asked her about that conflict within myself. And she said three words. She said, keep it juicy, which I really loved. Keep it juicy. What is it? You know, what is it you gravitate toward doing? So. I loved practicing asana and I still practice them. But when I was introduced to kirtan, the only reason I did kirtan is because that's all I wanted to do. Mm. I wanted to just sit in front of my altar with my harmonium or my ektara or eventually my guitar, which was a leap of faith for me. And all I wanted to do was just chant, you know, Sita Ram and Hare Krishna and Jayama and Om Namah Shivaya. I didn't do it because I thought I was being spiritual. I didn't do it because I thought it was the thing to do. I chanted and I still chant because I just deeply, deeply enjoy doing. Now, the perk of it is that it has transformed my life. But when I initially engaged the practice, I didn't say, well, I'm going to chant because I hear it does this or I hear it does that or I've been told that I should do it. I chanted because that's just all I wanted to do. Similarly, when I in law school, when I got introduced, you know, into I was studying with a a man named Gary Kraftsau, who, who was uh, teaching a Vinaya yoga practice of Desikachar and Krishnamacharya. That was the lineage that I trained in. I was in law school and I was practicing yoga four hours a day, four or five hours a day, but I just, not for any other reason, except I just wanted to be on the mat. That's just what I wanted to do. So um, it's just been a, a labor of love. My, my entire, um, you know, uh, sadhana has been a labor of love. I remember talking to a woman who did like a three-hour practice every morning. So, well, why do you do that practice? And she gave me a long list of reasons, one of which was not, I enjoy it. And I thought <sighs> that was interesting to me. You know, It, it was all future-related. I do it because I'm going to achieve this goal or what have you. Um, so I've learned more and more. I, I've learned to trust my joy. Yeah. To trust your joy. I've, you know, one. yeah, and, and as a musician, I've always found that those higher frequencies can use me as a vessel through my joy, mm. not through my suffering. Sometimes mm. I do suffer. Sometimes I go through dark times and challenges, and and, and and I don't judge that. And that's part of the journey and the process. I have found in my service that um, these, you know, uh, guides, masters energies they come through me most through my joy and i said that playing guitar was a leap of faith because it's not a traditional chant instrument so i had been playing guitar since i was 13 and um and started chanting using traditional indian instruments but always in the back of my head thought i just love playing the guitar wouldn't it be great to play guitar and chant mm -hmm. and so eventually i made that transition and with some really wonderful affirmations i remember having a dream where a great saint, uh, Nityananda, Bhagwan Nityananda, who was uh, Swami Muktananda's guru, was big, burly Indian guru. <laughs> it's not alive anymore. Um, and he was this fierce, I always felt drawn to him. And in the dream, he was sitting in lotus, and uh, he had just a loincloth on, and this big belly, 
but he was holding an acoustic Martin acoustic guitar in his hands. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and I woke dream. up from that dream thinking, oh, okay, maybe that's a sign. <laughs> and, and, and that really compelled me to start to pick up my guitar and, and compose mantras from a little bit more of a Western perspective, mm-hmm. which has been a real part of my, of my sharing, is to take an ancient Indian practice and make it more relatable mm-hmm. you know, to a Western culture. Mm-hmm. But I don't just do it to be in service. I play guitar and chant in that way because it comes natural to me. Mm. I enjoy it. It's kind of a merging of my two worlds. You know, would you say that as we come together in community and uh, hopefully all of us, those who are listening, have experienced the, the, the community vibration of chanting, it's, it's almost speechless. There's a complete portal that opens for us to break all barriers and the veil gets pulled away the illusion is just like completely dissolved and all that is real is here and now in present yes and through that sometimes that present can it be uh really messy at times Mm. you know so i kind of want to talk about this at some point in time because to me you know i've gone through a grueling 20 months Mm -hmm. and you know, through it, I've had beautiful waves through the spectrum emotional experience of what it is to be human. Even you yourself just said, sometimes I suffer. Sure. And also the greatest clarity and transmission comes through when I'm trusting my joy. Right. So how, when we step into chanting vibration or we chant, we step into that which fuels our joy Mm. that which inspires us to be who we are in our lives and to love what we're doing in our lives it still brings up this unsettling Mm. messy essence of what it means to be human how do we move forward with that and not just like stay down get knocked down and stay down i think you get what i'm going at. i do Yeah, yeah let's talk about that i do one of the phrases I like to use is that um, is that uh, singing kirtan fosters a sense of our own absence, meaning it loosens up uh, the the adhesive that binds us to a sense of uh, separative identity. Um, and that is some people call it an awakening process, which I do at times, but I also like to call it an unraveling process. Mm. <laughs> and the unraveling process is messy. Um, there, what I've noticed in my own journey, well, first of all, when you gravitate toward love, um, and this is the Kali aspect of it, you know, when you gravitate toward love and choose love, that means that there's going to be a, a natural um, release of everything that you have prior to that have identified with that is other than love. And so that's the, the Kali-esque aspect, you know, she cuts, she takes away. And sometimes... As, as much as we feel we're oriented to expansion and love and truth and joy, there are still strategies of ego that keep drawing us back into uh, old identifications. And the grace is that that, w- that will be taken from us because it is what we truly want at the deepest level. Sometimes it's sweet and joyful and sometimes it's dark and painful. And um, it's a process that everyone goes through. In my experience, including myself, I wrote my book. The Time Bound Traveler is about a three is about a three year dark night of the soul, and and all the intensity and difficulties that I went through, and some of which were devastating to me. 
and there were times where I thought I was going crazy. There were times where I thought, you say, got knocked down, that I didn't think I'd be able to get back up. And uh, talk about grace. People came into my life that gave me the medicine that I needed at any given time. And also my, my relationship to bhakti yoga was of great service because no matter how hard it, it got, it never got so big that I couldn't expand my heart and embrace it. The, the bhakti enabled me to say, ah, yes, this is a manifestation of love. This is a manifestation of grace. It's a manifestation of fierce grace, but it's still grace. And I, I travel often and uh, share notes and teach workshops and hear stories. And everybody's spiritual awakening is strewn with a sense of unraveling as well. And sometimes I use the word calamity. Everybody's been through some form of calamity. A woman in New York City, uh, my program was talking about what instigated her spiritual awakening, and it was being held at gunpoint. That was that was her thing that opened her up. Another man, it was getting hit by a truck. Somebody else, maybe it's their, their partner or husband or wife leaving them after 25 years unexpectedly, whatever it is. Or it's just thinking, you know, that we're spiritual and then we enter into a situation which really humbles us, you know, and, and shows us that there's more work to be done. So everybody goes through the grit. Everybody, you know, gets put in the grinder at some point. And, um, and it's all, the bhakti way is, is the, under, the experiential understanding that no matter how difficult it is, it is the beloved, you know, on your side, liberating you, cleansing you, awakening you, enabling you to be a greater, more of service, humble yogi, so to speak, mm. or bhakti, depending mm. on, you know, your path. Mm. Yeah. You know, when you're alone, David, and maybe you're driving your car, mm-hmm. or you're just waking up, or just moments throughout your day when you are completely by yourself, there's no other energy from any other person around you. And uh, maybe, as you had said, some of these egoic s- thoughts pulse through. And maybe they're not in the alignment of love source, God, reflection, vibration. Gotcha. Got it? Mm-hmm. What is it that has you shift perspective Sure. to hold the, hold the awareness to recognize, oh gosh, that's that's a self-limiting belief. <laughs> that's not real. <laughs> sure, sure. How do we shift those moments into the frequency of... Yeah. Well, the first thing that has to happen is, as you just mentioned, awareness right. of what's happening. That's hard. Well, I don't like to affirm that mantra. Okay. It, it's hard. It's not because hard. It's, it's, it's not hard because it's more it's natural right. to be in a state of loving acceptance than to be there. So mm. it, it, it can, it can, you, all of us can experience it to be hard to be lost in the sure. mind mesh, you know, and distracted in that way. So the first thing that has to happen is, you know, and that's the path of jnana yoga, self-inquiry, reflection, mm. attentive awareness. Mm. And I think that's something, you know, uh, habitually that we orient ourselves towards is like, Wow, I just went down the rabbit hole, <laughs> right? Well, you know, you know I, I just, wow, I really went there. And the mind goes into some, you know, really separative place of darkness. Once you're aware of that, and hopefully it doesn't last too long, um, I always say that once you identify that, it doesn't stand a chance. 
And, and I don't know, um, obviously, there's many different uh, tools that people bring to that to shift themselves into a more uh, grateful, open, loving state of uh, being in terms of relating to themselves. Again, for me, it comes back to mantra, and it comes back to utilizing that as, as, as a way of uplifting my vibration. In addition to kirtan, there's another practice that's big for me, and that's called japa. Mm. And japa is when you hold a malo or a string of beads in your hand and you run your thumb, you run your finger, your thumb over the bead. And with every time your thumb hits the bead, you repeat the mantra. And for me, that's a way of remembering and staying connected. I also now it's such a, an amazing thing. In addition to say myself, there's so many incredible musicians making conscious music in kirtan and you know through through everything you surround yourself like keep the vibration uplifted so if you're driving in your car put on some music that has a positive message that reminds you um or or also association is a big part of yoga practice you know pick up the phone and call somebody who understands the journey you're on you know when i was going through my spiritual awakening i was very uh, careful about who I, I associated with because some people would tell me i was crazy and i needed to be medicated and the next person would say hey i, I understand you're on the path of spiritual awakening you know how can i help yeah so just you, you know for me keeping the parameters of my life uh you know through just mm-hmm. you know i want to see reflections of that upliftment i want to hear them you know i want to taste them when we walked in you talked about food i want to eat food that keeps me uplifted and vibrating high um things of that nature wow and that's really what bhakti is is fulfilling you know it's the divine in form yeah so fulfilling your senses with an uplifted vibration do you feel that during your spiritual awakening Mm. maybe you've had more than one uh, maybe one very like maha big, big spiritual awakening. I call in your that life. my lightning bolt. Okay, the lightning bolt. <laughs> Talk about your lightning bolt. Would you say that in your lightning bolt there were some other humans that really supported you in such a way to ask this question? Have you been able to support others in their spiritual awakening in a very powerful, profound, humble way? It is the greatest honor to be of service in that way. When I got hit by my lightning bolt, it was uh, 2010. It it opened up a state of a uh, state of uh, a being that was uh, new terrain for me. It represented the the unknown in a very intimate way, and it was extraordinary that people showed up. There were three teachers in particular that literally came out of the woodwork who understood what I was going through at a time where I had no understanding of what was happening. And I was, when it first hit me, it was, it was literally terrifying. Um, and so that, pro- that was a three-year journey of integrating one moment. It was a three-year journey of relaxing into one moment. And all the support in the world showed up for me, three beings that were my, they were my lifeline. And now, just I was in New York City and a woman contacted me and she was in the middle of what I had been going through. So I dropped everything and I said to her, you know, come to my workshop. After my workshop, we went out and sat and had dinner. And um, she said to me, 
just knowing that you're on the planet and that you've gone through what I'm going through is deeply meaningful. And now she, she'll, she'll send me every couple of days just a text and she'll just say, tell me it's okay. And I'll say, it's okay. And she'll say, tell me I'm going to get through this. And I say, you're going to get through this. Just having somebody else there because her greatest fear was what was happening to her now, that this was going to be her new status quo, that she was not going to get through to the other side of what she was going through. She was living a life, this, this very intense spiritual transformation came upon her and her whole life fell apart. And so I, when, when I recognize the signs of somebody who's in the thick of it, I, I drop everything to be there for them to the degree that I can. Yes. Yeah. We have to be here for each other. It's, mm. it's, it's crucial. Yeah. And I feel that somebody said this to me, um, you know, gurus have been guruing for thousands of years. And when they first came to the West, you know, congregations of people centered around one particular person who was the guru, who was the enlightened master. Somebody said once to me as we move into the 21st century that the guru is now transforming into community. We all represent a manifestation of the guru of the truth. And so we're, we're here in community. The guru is being spread among us. We all reflect a different facet of that greater truth. And that's, for me, the beauty, the beauty of Sangha. I mean, somebody may be going through some, some manifestation of spiritual awakening that, that I may not fully understand. So you may be that person. You know, in this case, you know, the symptoms and the particularities of this woman's awakening were very similar to what I, what I went through. So we're all called to be here for each other. Mm. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you for that. Sure. I'm sure that, you know, if there's people that are listening to that, there might have been a few people that popped up in their mind and their life of how they can support, you know, one of my intentions. So I believe as I hold the intention with this podcast that... Mm-hmm. The several thousand people that are blessed to be able to listen to this information within just a week of this being on the internet, that this is intentional divine messages coming through through the ears, through the hearts mm-hmm. of people who are ready sure. for this information. Readiness it is, is not by accident. <laughs> no, it's not. Their readiness is an amazing thing. You know, when I'm out there, you know, I can just pinpoint someone who's just ripe. It's the wanting that comes forward, you know, and um, yeah. One of my, you, you know, one of my favorite uh, quotes that I ever heard in terms of being of service to others, even when we are going through it, is the student says to the teacher, "I'm discouraged. What should I do?" Teacher says to the student, "Encourage others." Hmm. Because it's in that vulnerable realness that we do, we are in service to each other. You know, it's not me reflecting back to that woman who's going through a hard time, me just, you know, projecting my own liberation. It's me saying, hey, you know what? I've gone through this. It's hard. I get it. I love that because it's not discrediting or denying or rejecting the challenge to really look at ourselves and self inquire. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful. I love that. So, you know, one more topic and then we'll begin to conclude this amazing conversation. I'm really appreciating all of this. Oh, thanks. Um, How has mantra practice supported you in manifestation 
Mm. Great question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, the the path that I've been treading, which is kind of in you know my relationship with a, a being who met me on the inner planes, who I never physically met, and then sort of following the unseen path which is an unfolding, which, you know, has required a kind of, uh, you know, just intuitive awareness. Um, there's, there's something uh, called uh, in the yoga teachings that I know you, you've heard, Siddhi, which is a mystical mm-hmm. power, you know. Some people say that gurus can walk through walls, or Neem Karoli Baba was known as the food Baba. So he would feed people. He would reach. He was always wrapped in a plaid blanket. He would reach into his plaid blanket, and he would just give fruit to people and no matter how many people came he yeah, never ran out of fruit. <laughs> so he had he had a food city um he, he was known as saying that the greatest city that one can have is love in their heart mm. is love in their heart mm. and that's my path um letting the open heart do the manifestation i have a dear friend uh um who was living with a woman on Kauai. we were talking about mm. that her name is Joan, and she's done a lot of great service work and has been very successful and very wealthy woman. And somebody said to her, you know, Joan, you look what you've achieved in your life. You're an incredible manifester. And her response was, actually, I'm not a great manifester. I'm a great receiver. Yeah. And people have come to me and said, can you teach me a mantra how to manifest a relationship? Can you teach me a mantra of how to manifest lots of money? Can you teach me a mantra of how to, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And I've never gone there. I've never had an inclination to utilize a mantra to manifest a particular outcome. I chant uh, just to maintain a sense of open-heartedness and let my heart do the manifesting. And I just to the best of my ability, choose to receive the grace in whatever form it comes. And the less preferential I am with my receptivity, the more joy. Oh, here comes grace in this way. Oh, here comes grace in this way. You know, it's not a million dollars, but it's enough to enable me to have a nice van so that Mm. I can pack my instruments in there and go on the road, you know. Um, so that's the kind of manifesting I'm into. I love that. You you know, the, the, the... The, the, how, how I'm seeing you from an outside perspective is, is, you know, you've really been able to, through the course of your life, take your hand off the steering wheel, man. Right. Be like, yo, I'm not, I'm not driving this bus. No. Even if the <laughs> ego part of me really feels like I want to go that way. Right. I think at this point in time, you've realized that you're not in the driver's seat and, and spirit's guiding you placing these omens and signs for you to follow a path of, of bhakti, of devotion, of service to others, which seems to be that, you know, first and foremost, you really found the way to serve yourself right. and to love yourself. And what is something that you could offer to those who feel like, ah, sure, my hands, though, <laughs> are tight on the They're <laughs> glued to the steering wheel. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, as you were saying that, what what um, uh, what struck me was that it, you know for me it wasn't some big you know super powered disciplinary uh, you know expression of of shifting that consciousness. For me, it was that holding on to the steering wheel that tightly. <clears throat> 
I became just, it just became too hard to do. I just didn't want to do it anymore. So you did do it for a long time. I did it for a long time. Yeah. Um, but when I wrote my book, I, I, this, this Zen Cohen came to me and I feel like in some ways it became like the cornerstone of my entire book. And I'm going to say it to you now. And I, whenever I share with people, I always say it twice. And so here we go. The desire to let go is, in actuality, the desire to hold on, masquerading as the desire to let go. I'll say it again. The desire to let go is, in actuality, the desire to hold on, masquerading as the desire to let go. I gotta let go. I gotta let go. I gotta let go. I'm gonna tell you just a little, a little Zen story about that. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Student comes in to study with the Zen master. Okay, and the Zen master brings out a little pot of tea with some beautiful porcelain cups. Mm. Hot steaming tea pours it into the cup for the student and then hands the cup to the student. The student's holding this beautiful, beautiful, probably like, you know, from some dynasty, you know, thousands of years ago, holding the cup, about to take a sip of this tea. And the master says to the student, let go of the cup. And so the student's surprised by that request, and the master says again a little more firmly, let go of the cup. And so all of a sudden, the, the student's going into this, you know, story. How can I let go of this cup? It's, it's, it's going to fall, and it's going to shatter, and it's going to break. And the master says, let go of the cup. And then the student's saying, and there's hot tea, and it's going to spill all over my pants. And, and then just becomes paralyzed because the mind is so involved in the process. And then the master reaches over to the student and takes the cup and says, observe. Master, let's go of the cup. The ego believes that if we were to let go, everything would just fall apart. Mm. And so it creates a story, and the story is that it's hard to let go. Mm. That's the story. And I'm going to create this desire, and the desire is to let go, but really... That's my way of continuing to hold on tight. Letting go is not hard. Letting go is a natural state. You know, the master wasn't involved in a storyline about what would happen if she dropped the cup. You just put the cup down. You let go. That's it. And you trust. And so turning it on its head for me has really been a strong piece of my, of my teaching. And that is, no, no. It's not hard to let go. You know, I, I didn't overcome something that was difficult. What I found was that it was infin- infinitely easier to let go <laughs> than mm. to hold on. That's what I found. So meaning that it's not hard to let go. It's hard to hold on. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Last yeah. final question is, you know, as we're concluding this conversation what would be one golden nugget that you would offer to listeners as they 
go on just for this day, not for like life, like this week or tomorrow, just just today. Golden nugget for today. Okay. Well, um, this this is for today, but you'll excuse me because it is for every day. Yes. And I'm going to I'm going to turn it over to to Neem Crowley Baba, mm. my guide. I'm going to use one of his quotes. Better to see the divine in everything than to try and figure it out. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Will you conclude us with some sacred mantra that is coming for you? Sure. This is a mantra. It means lead us from uh, asatoma sadgamaya, lead us from... Illusion to truth, tamasoma jyotirgamaya, lead us from darkness to light, nityorma amritam gamaya, lead us from death to immortality. Mm-hmm. And I'll chant it to finish. Om asatoma sadgamaya, tamasoma jyotirgamaya, nityorma amritam gamaya, Om Shanti 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 Yoga Revealers, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope this conversation has been as powerful and insightful as it has for you, just like it was for me. My heart is wide open and I'm ready here to love myself in order to love you all even more. If you'd like to find David across America, whether he's singing, leading workshops, or chanting at festivals, go to davidnewmanmusic.com. We appreciate you so very much. Until next time, looking forward to dropping in and illuminating the wisdom of yoga here on the Yoga Revealed Podcast. Your brother, Alec Michal Rubin, is sending you love from Colorado. Aloha and namaste.